Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Revolution Recap. We have another great episode for you today. It is part two of our conversation with Jeff Laurentowitz. If you have not listened to part one, please do. It is in our feed. He told a lot of great stories from his time with the Revolution, as well as how he was drafted by the Revs and why he has recently retired. Today, Jeff talks about playing on a reserve player salary starting out, his decision not to re-sign with the Revs, and his career after leaving New England, uh, and his time with other clubs. We also have some MLSPA CBA talk, if you're into that, so fun for the whole family today on Revolution Recap, a little bit of something for everyone. I'm sure you guys are going to love it. Um, No outro in this podcast today, we're just going to let the interview play us out, so I'll get this out of the way now. Please like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever wherever you listen to podcasts if you have not already. Uh, We are planning on having a new podcast out every week this season with some bonus episodes like this one sprinkled throughout, so please make sure you're subscribed. Also, please support us by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review wherever you are listening. And also, you can follow us on uh, at Revolution Recap on Twitter, as well as our Revolution Recap Instagram and Facebook pages. And now, with all that being said, Jeff Laurentwitz, part two. I got I got to jump back to something you talked about a little bit earlier, and that was kind of the the tough decision that you said you were making in your second year on you know whether that was kind of make or break for you because the the contracts back then for a player like yourself were so small. When you you know we talked about the reserve league becoming a thing, but that meant supplemental roster spots, which you know was great because it gave you an opportunity. But you only made eleven thousand seven hundred dollars your rookie year. I know there were some players that were living rent free with host families, but but that was something that you didn't want to do. You know how did how did you end up surviving on that you know level of salary and you know, did. Did you have any second thoughts about going into soccer based on that, especially, you know, given the doors probably open from having an Ivy League education? Um, yeah, it was it wasn't easy. Yeah, I got some help from my my parents. Um, but, you know, you go from college where you've got nothing to making money to play soccer. And, you know, that was like, wow, this is this is pretty good. I don't I don't care if it was, you know, as as little as it was. It still was like, um this is kind of cool to get paid to, to play soccer. Um, but it, it wasn't easy financially. I, my rookie year, I lived in four different places just cause I had to move because I was subletting, trying to find the cheapest place possible. Um, 2006, Joe Franchino let me, you know, give you some names here that I'll jog your memory. Ryan Latham, TJ Tommaso and Kyle Brown. We lived together in Cumberland, Rhode Island, in a house that Joe Franchino owned. Um, we paid him very little money and kind of got by as a family of four guys that were making no money. So you just you find ways, you know, I think it's easier to go from zero to a little bit than it is to go from a lot to a little bit. And at that time, you know, you just kind of you, you find a way. And I, more than anything, it's it's the carrot on the end of the stick as as i'm sure don garver and the folks in the league office envisioned it to be um you're essentially signing an apprenticeship and um it it sucks when you play every game and you're still making that money um that's what i felt the league could have done better on but to to give the opportunity is is um is great for a young kid and i think that it was really just more than anything a test 
and that's kind of how I viewed it. Well, and, and you bring up an important point, and that's, you know, by 2007, 2008, you were an established starter, a key part of this team, and you were still only making something in, like, the 30K ballpark at, at that point. Um, you know, it seemed kind of like the team wanted to take advantage of the, your bargain contract and wait till they absolutely had to before negotiating an extension. And I think I, I remember reading something at the time where you kind of commented on that, and maybe specifically even, you know, Mike Burns has been kind of difficult. And we, we, we heard... Recently, I think it was Michael Parker's gave an interview with uh, Revs Confidential where he mentioned that you know, part of the reason he didn't come back to the Revs was because they had that reputation of not being a, a player's club. Could you kind of talk about you know, any you know, frustration you had back then that you know, four years in, you were still making $30,000 when you were a key part of a team that kept making a MLS Cup? Yeah, it was, it was really tough. It was really tough. But, you know, you don't, the, you as a club, you don't have to offer anything else. You know, you're in a contract and, um, I, I understood that I didn't like it at all. And back then, 2006, seven, eight, nobody resigned in the middle of the year, nobody. And at the end of the year, they didn't have to give you anything else because, um, they just, they knew that players, had an option. The option was all theirs. And, and that was that. And it was difficult to, to break free of those contracts. And, um, it's funny that you mentioned that about Parkey and, and him making that decision. Um, you know, it was gut wrenching for me to leave new England and, and walk into Steve's office and tell him I wasn't resigning because I mean, you can hear it the way I tell these stories, like time of my life. I love those guys. Um, but at the time, I was watching what was happening to Steve Ralston at the end of his career. And I was going, man, if they do this to this guy, like Steve is an idol. He was a hero. And obviously, he was toward the end of his career. But um, seeing how things were going for him, I was like, man, if, if it's going that way for him, I, there's no way I'm going to get what I want here. And... I had to make a really, really hard decision. And I think there was, I think it was Frank DeLapa that reported that you almost signed an extension in 2009, but kind of was the last, it was a last minute decision. Why did that deal fall apart? Was it you know, just because of what you were just saying or, or were, you, were you that close to resigning? I was an, a centimeter from, from resigning. In fact, I, I think I kind of said, okay, I'm going to resign. And, you know, I fully admit I woke up in a moment of clarity, I literally got out of bed and I said, I can't sign that contract. And I called Mike and I told him I wasn't going to sign it. And, you know, I'm sure Mike will tell you now, like, going back on your word, you shouldn't do that. Um, I, sitting here telling you now, I probably shouldn't have done that or maybe I shouldn't have told him I was going to sign it. But, um, yeah, I was as close as you can get to, to re-signing. I mean... Not to throw the numbers out there, but the number the Rebs offered me was really, really small and not what I deserved, even in the slightest. But I kind of looked at it as, you know, I liked it here. And maybe they, you know, they knew that. And that was their negotiating tactic. And I nearly signed it. But I got more than, more than double, nearly triple when I left. 
I think you've already kind of alluded to it, but is it, it's, it's fair to say that, you know, we, we heard the story about Parker, as you mentioned, Steve Ralston. There's been a number of stories about Revolution players kind of feeling similarly, similarly about contract negotiations with the team. Uh, is, it, is it accurate or do you think it's, it's true to say that, you know, not every team in the league had this problem? This was a New England problem, maybe a couple other teams, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't so much a league-wide problem as a Revs problem? No, it's a league problem. It's a league problem, without a doubt. I mean, this can kind of go from Jeff telling stories interview to like really getting into it. It's a league-wide problem, but I think it's it's a problem that comes with a capped league. Um, no matter what, when you're faced with these decisions, if you have to work within a budget, you have to work within a budget. You have players that overperform. You have players. Um, you have a team that that does incredibly well at the end of a season when you, the team does well. Everyone thinks it's because of them. Everyone wants more money. I mean, that's natural. But in a capped league and a league that's capped in such a, a, a small cap way, in a way that limits what you can pay, um, you're always going to have disgruntled guys. And, you know, in, in, in the NBA, they created the Larry Bird rule. You know, you have the ability to kind of go outside the cap to keep people around. And, um, you know, I think that the MLS has come up with a million different ways to pay a million different people who are the wrong people to pay um, and not really come up with a way to pay the right people. And um, I think that you saw that through the years. And I, I get the economics. I get the, the fact that players get old and they got to move on or um, teams have to rebuild. I understand that. But I think that what you're going to be left with is a league that continually kind of their their soul gets scooped out because you're not club building you're not you know creating a family as you see like potentially in europe or other places you're really just it's a business and players come and go and and that's the way it'll be and what you'll always end up with is players that are disgruntled players that leave and don't want to go back or talk to those people um and i think it's a tough situation i don't think it's easy to fix but um, I certainly think that it was not necessarily just a Rebs problem because everyone was spending the same amount on the cap. Um, it was it's, it's really kind of a league wide and, and cap um, restrained issue. Obviously, you are passionate about this topic. Is the issues like this? Is that what led you to joining the uh, uh, MLSPA? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I say on one hand, like it was great to be paid to play soccer it was great to be in league it was thank you for the opportunity etc um but on the other hand it's like dude i'm i'm living with five people in providence i don't know because i need to sublet a room and and yet i'm on abc on saturday and people are watching me um that doesn't really make sense in my head and so i wanted to find out why why is that why why are contracts written this way you know, why is it a one-way option? Why, when I play out my deal in 2009, was I not able to go somewhere unless it was overseas for for free? Why did the Rebs trade me at that point, even though they said, you know, well, I'm not giving you a contract or you're not, I'm not giving you what you want? Um, and so that really got me into it. Marshall Leonard, Jay Heaps, they were the guys in the locker room. Bob Foose, who's still the executive director, was the executive director back then. 
and a brown grad and so i kind of latched on to that and i said oh, okay here's here's a guy who's working lead went to my school let's see what um he's talking about and it just it continued and it grew and you know one cba will really tick you off two cbas will really you know make you want to find a solution and every year you see kind of i don't know some doe-eyed kids coming in from college going, well, what are the rules? What do I have to do? What am, what are they supposed to do? How, how, how can they help me? Can you help me? And so I wanted to be that guy because I had been through it. You know, I could sympathize completely with what all these guys are. Sorry, empathize with all these guys with what they were going through. Out of curiosity, Jeff, uh, were you involved in the negotiations of the new CBA? I know it was prolonged over the last couple of years, but um, what are your your thoughts on the new CBA? Obviously, you guys have, have come a long time, but um, what was your kind of thoughts on the end result there? The CBA signed in January, February, or agreed upon in January, February of 2020 was by far the greatest achievement for the PA. Uh, getting getting free agency in t- 2015 or a form of restricted free agency without a work stoppage in 2015 was a feat. Um, the the deal that we worked on for years with the league um, that was signed at the beginning pre-COVID of 2020 was really kind of going to send the league in a great direction. Um, COVID struck some ludicrous offers from the league. Um, finally, an agreement and a tournament in Orlando, followed by um, what I felt was a pretty kind of predatory force majeure clause that opened things back up in December, um, leading to not a full um, erasure of, of what happened at the beginning of 2020, but almost like a step backwards. Um, and I, again, I understand the economics. I know that sports are getting crushed. I know that the league already loses money and to deal with a pandemic in empty stadiums is not easy at all. A lot of folks at the league have lost their job, which I completely understand um, and feel terrible about. Um, but again, it's it's striking that balance of um, rewarding um, the teams and the players that have kind of stuck it out and 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 coming up with solutions. And I think that more so than ever, I give the league a lot of credit for working with the players more than they ever have. Um, but I still think it, it could be better. And in the end, I was not involved in 2021 coming to the final agreement. But... Um, yeah, 2020 was by far the toughest um, period of, of negotiations in my career. 2015 was close. We spent a week in D.C. negotiating with a federal arbitrator, um, and that was really tough. Voting to strike was really, really tough. But 2020 um, really kind of towers over any of the pain we went through in 2015. If I remember correctly, too, I mean, there was a real, I think 2020, you know, there's talk of a lockout or a striker or whatever. But if I remember correctly, 2015, it came very, very close, as you kind of just said. And you also got free agency in 2015. I mean, were, were you, how, how close were we to not having soccer in 2015? Because I was pretty surprised you guys got free agency during those negotiations. Yeah, well, we we struck. 
you know, we voted to strike and it was at, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, honestly, we, we, I don't know how politicians do it, you know, to, to pass these bills when they're just kind of working nonstop. I mean, it just felt like it was the middle of the night. It's definitely beyond midnight and everyone kind of went around and voted no on a, a proposal from the league. And that no, we knew meant there was going to be a stoppage and um, the players were walking away. It was Wednesday night and the first game was either Friday or Saturday night. And so we were two days away from that. But immediately that vote went to um, the folks, the executives, the league and the owners. And they came back to the table and um, changed them some things around. And then uh, we voted again and, you know, free agency and, the expansion of, of what was included was involved in that. And, um, you know, though no games were missed, we definitely voted to strike, but, you know, the only North American professional league to ever achieve free agency without a work stop, which I think it's pretty remarkable. Where do you think the MLSPA goes from here? What do you think is their next, um, push. Uh, I know that they, they have a new CBA that goes for, I think, another five years, but what would you like to see the MLSPA do next? I think that the, the I was on the executive board from 2013 until the end of this year, or last year. So we we took the the PA as a board and with Bob and, and, and the others at the, at the office there, we took the board from, you know, five or so employees to fully expanding and including so many things. Um, we've expanded the board. We feel like we communicate better with the player pool. We understand the player pool better. Um, we have a greater digital presence. We have um, an app for communicating. We, we, we expanded so many things internally that um, I think that with a long runway of this new deal that the players agreed to, will give um, the PA uh, more of an opportunity to do new and different things, maybe creating revenue streams for the players um, that they never were able to do in the past. You know, it was more about, do you get all your per diem? They give you enough days off. Have they given you your moving stipend, et cetera, to kind of becoming um, some a, a group that can really kind of drive revenue for players individually or um, in, in groups as well. So I think that beyond the the bargaining things that will always be there and will always be number one on the list, I think that the the PA will kind of um, expand to to new territory that they've never been been able to before. And we wanted to quickly go over some of the the other parts of your career post revs. How did the trade to Colorado come about? And I got to ask too because I, I know. Another thing Michael Parker said in a recent interview was that he, at the time he left the Revs, you could kind of see the, the downward trajectory the Revs were in. Did you, did you see that, you know, towards the end of your time there? Was that something you kind of saw coming and, you know, maybe factored into your contract decision as well as everything else? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, Parky's last year was eight and mine was nine. Um, and oh nine, we were not a good team. Um, you guys will probably remember the last day of the year we flew to Columbus and it's funny, we, you know, you fly out the day before, which was Saturday, and this was before the league created Decision Day, um, where everyone plays at the same time. Most of the league played um, the day before we played. 
And I remember taking off for Columbus and going like, oh, man, we need a lot of results to go our way. And landing in Columbus and almost every result going our way. And we had to win that game to get into the playoffs. And we won one nothing. And I scored on a free kick. And the reason why I'm telling you the story is when you watch that, if you go back and watch that, the TV broadcast, I scored a free kick. And at some point during the celebration, they show Matt in goal. And Matt, you know, turns around the way goalies do and kind of goes back to his goal. And he kind of lifts his eyebrows and goes, well, guess we're playing in the playoffs. And it was kind of one of those years. And I, I didn't feel like the, the club was kind of going in a great direction. You know, conversations with Stevie. He also wasn't sure if he was going to be there potentially. And so... I just felt like, all right, I've, I've kind of gone through one challenge and now I need to go through another one. And how was your time in Colorado? What was it like winning an MLS Cup your first season there after coming so close so many times with the Revs? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. So <laughs> going through the the kind of saga of leaving the Revs, um, I played the, played the end of the year on a really bad knee injury and I knew that it was the end of my contract. I had to keep playing. And... So, I, you know, I had hopes of playing in Europe, at least getting a contract in, you know, maybe a Scandinavian club or um, outside of the UK. But I couldn't because I knew that I had this knee injury. And, um, and so I got, I got traded to, to Colorado. But before I got traded, really one of the only guys I knew out there was Corey Gibbs. And I was calling Corey and I was saying, man, how's it going out there? Like, what's the team like that my agent's saying Colorado might be interested? And he was like, dude, I don't know. Like, we didn't make the playoffs. We had to train after the year and everything blew up. Everyone's mad at each other, mad at the coach. It's the organization's a mess. And I was like, oh, man. And, you know, who knows, maybe two weeks later, me and Corey get traded for each other. <laughs> he comes to New England. I go to Colorado with Wells, Preston Burpo comes um, in the other direction. And yeah, I mean, we got to, I got to Colorado and I could feel that tension from the year before I ended up having the knee surgery that I needed. So I was out for half of preseason, but I got there. It was first time kind of living in a new place. I'd been in new England for nine years with college and, you know, I, I crashed with Pat Noonan for a few weeks. And um, so I kind of felt at home and I felt like, all right, this is a new challenge. And I could, I could tell it was a club that didn't really believe in itself. Didn't really want to, didn't know how to win. Um, Gary Smith was like an interim coach who then they then hired. Um, certainly one of the clubs that was not considered one of the best in the league. And I could feel that when I got there. We played our first game on the road in L.A. against Chivas, and we won. And it was the first time in Rapids history they ever won their season opener away from home. And I was like, man, you guys are celebrating some strange records here. But we we pulled it together. The The, the locker room, again, was like what what drove us forward. We, we were a team in the league that had no DPs. Um, we were a team in the league that did not have great crowds. We were a team in the league that not a lot of people cared about and not a lot of people liked, um, but we ended up winning. And I think it was kind of on the strength of some of the guys in our locker room. You know, I give Pablo Mastroeni a huge amount of credit for kind of holding it together and, 
in an absurd way. You know, you get kind of grizzled as an MLS vet. You've seen it all, been through it all. And Pablo was that guy and, and, and kept us together. And yeah, we won the cup in the most strange of fashions. But, and I still remember people kind of being so pissed off that we won it because we were the last team in and we ended up winning the cup. But the, that, that year was, was really special. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It seems like the next two seasons, the team fell off a bit and then didn't make the playoffs your final year there. What, what led to the, the trade to Chicago? Um, the, yeah, the team, the team kind of 2011, we made the playoffs, but we weren't great. We got absolutely smoked by Kansas city in the playoffs. Um, Gary Smith was the head coach at the time. Um, you know, I think he was dealing with contract stuff and didn't get what he wanted. So he, um, he and the club parted ways. They brought in Oscar Pereja for 2012. Um, and you know, he was a fairly young coach and we were a group of players that had been through success, had been through failure and it just didn't mesh. And at the end of the season, even though the, the, the Rapids re-signed me for an extension um, in the middle of the 2012 season. Um, it all came to a head and yeah, I got traded to Chicago. And, you know, you benefited from, we talked about MLS free agency coming into existence in, in 2015 with that CBA. We, you benefited from it in 2016 and got the chance to sign for Bruce arena in the galaxy. Um, what was your time like with LA? And you know, I'm sure our listeners would be interested what it's, what it's like to play for Bruce arena, given he's coaching the revs now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, playing for the yellow galaxy was a, a career ambition of mine. Um, I mean, growing up with the league and playing against them for so long, they were, and still are a premier club and they were the premier club. Um, and I wanted to play for them so badly. And so when I became a free agent, I told my agent, I was like, get me to LA. And for the longest time, the, the answer was no. And I was like, I mean, you joke about cutting the lawn. I was like, I'll go for nothing. Like, I want to go there. And so ultimately, as it kind of does in free agency, there's the there's the period where everyone thinks they're going to get their shiny new toys, foreign players, et cetera, fill up their cap with those guys. Some, some of it falls through, and then they come around to the MLS guys. And when they finally came back around, there was um, space for me and um, money for me and... I remember Bruce kind of calling me and saying, you know, we want you on the team and in kind of Bruce classic Bruce fashion kind of downplayed who I'd be playing with, but also by downplaying it sort of made it sound like the coolest thing ever. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm going there. And so, um, it, it was a bittersweet time because again, it was like a career ambition to play there and play for Bruce and be a part of that organization. But, I got groin surgery at the end of 2015 and I was told by a doctor it would take six weeks to recover and it ended up taking me four months. And so, um, it was a tough time for me and kind of had a, a wishy-washy personal experience. And I think at that time as well for the galaxy as a club, it was, um, a time of transition as well. So I wouldn't say that 
it was a bad experience because, you know, my locker was right next to Steven Gerrard's, but, and, and all the stories that kind of, I was, I was there and the roster I talked about, um, what an experience, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't great for us as a team, but still so happy to, um, have done it and be a part of it. Do you think you would have been there more than one season if uh, Arena had, had been there for more than just that year? Or what, why did you end up leaving for Atlanta? I don't know. That's that's debatable. Um, I, 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 would, I, I don't know. You have to ask Bruce. Um, I didn't have a great season. You know, I, I dealt with kind of the psychological, emotional effects of, of what was going on with that injury and recovery from surgery. Um and you know it was it was tough and like i said you know robbie Keane left landon unretired then re-retired steven gerrard retired robbie rogers retired you know that whole locker room kind of went away um bruce took the national team job um and so yeah i, I mean if bruce had stayed it might have been different but i think the opportunity to play in atlanta i was looking at it was like all right, I've done LA. I kind of it didn't work, and so maybe I find something new. I want to take a step back and and go to Chicago for a minute, just to tie a loose end from earlier in the podcast. What was it like playing in Chicago uh, in front of those fans? Um, did you ever win them back after your bunny ears celebration? Or um, no, I didn't. It was <laughs> it was really hard. It was really really hard. I mean. I remember being booed by them. I remember things being yelled at me by them. Um, I scored my first goal at home in Chicago, and I kind of went over to the fans like, when are you guys going to appreciate me? Um, it. I, I can't say that everyone was that way. I think a lot of people at one end of the stadium were that way, though. And so it was tough. Um, but... You know, I eventually became captain. I have so many good friends from my time there. And um, I think sometimes you got to go through failure to kind of figure some stuff out about yourself and figure out what not to do and what you want to avoid. Because up until that point, other than, you know, a, a bad year in 2012 with the Rapids, you know, it was all great years. Um, for the most part, or at least success getting into the playoffs and stuff. And um, yeah, those three years, I think the first year in Chicago was, was pretty good, but the other two were, you know, really, really poor. And the fans there love the club. And I think that that is great. Um, And they also let you know when you're not performing and they, they, they never forgot that I was Jeff from the revs. You mentioned that you you and your agent tried to get you out to L.A. for, for so many years. Was there ever an interest in you in going back to New England to play for Jay Heaps? I know I asked you about Bruce Arena and the past couple of years, but um, during that kind of period, um, were you ever in contact with Jay about returning to New England? No, I wasn't. But I think that that, I don't know, that might have just been timing contract-wise. Mm-hmm. But no, not, never with Jay. It, it would have been... It would have been great, but no, that was never really on the table. 
So you leave uh, LA Galaxy, you end up signing with Atlanta in their expansion season in 2017. And I kind of made the joke to Sean before the show, you know, you went from New England, Colorado, Chicago uh, to LA and then Atlanta, you know, New England, Chicago, Colorado. If you're looking at Grant Wall's ownership, ambition ratings, um, you know, they're not very high on the list. Um, When you signed in Atlanta, how much did ownership and Arthur Blank come into play? And did you see his vision of what he wanted to build there? The only things I knew were that they sold a bunch of tickets, which, you know, it seems like an eternity ago, but not a lot of clubs were doing that then, 2016. Um, And yeah, that they had a great owner. And I'm from Philadelphia. And honestly, the Phillies were playing the Braves last night. And Acuna hit a home run and I was furious. My wife was like, why are you upset? The Braves just hit a home run. And I said, I'm a Phillies fan. And I grew up hating Atlanta. Um, and so to like think about moving there, I was like, man, I don't know. It's kind of feels like another Chicago thing. It's like, I don't know if I'm going to gel with these people. But um, I talked about it with my wife and I was just, she, she said, you know, you've kind of done everything in MLS except for playing for an expansion team. So why don't, why don't, you, why don't you try it? And so, you know, the, the idea of um, having playing in front of a bunch of fans, I knew they sold tickets and having an owner that sounded like he was going to put his all into the team sounded, sounded appealing. What was it like playing for an expansion team, especially one that was uh, so extremely successful and, and had that, you know, huge fan base right out of the gate? It was it was cool. I mean, one of the I don't know, one of the moments where you kind of stop in your tracks and you're just totally present in what was going on at that time. One of the, f- the few in my career was walking on to the Bobby Dodd the night we played the Rebels, the, the first game in Atlanta. And it was just like, oh, my God, this is this is for real, um, because we had just been we had been behind closed doors. You know, there was no team prior we didn't know if fans were showing up. We heard they were. Um, we were living in a hotel because Tata Martino, you know, it's called concentration in South America. You, you basically are removed from the world and just play soccer. And so, um, yeah, being a part of that excitement was was crazy. You know, it was unlike anything I had gone through in the league. You know, obviously playing in L.A. was was cool. and We played in a lot of really, really special games. But the that was like that every week in Atlanta. And what was it like being reunited with your former Revolution teammate uh, Michael Parkhurst down in Atlanta? Yeah, it was great. I mean, he signed before I did, and and um, I was thinking, all right, well, we still have a relationship with somebody when I go there. I mean, it's definitely something players think about and and look at. And yeah, it was it was great. I mean, having a familiar face and someone that that you can kind of rely on was 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 awesome i think that what the expansion experience does to everybody is everybody within that kind of organization or even within the locker room is everyone's on a level field you know even if you played an mls prior like i did it didn't matter because we were all going through the same trials and tribulations together and learning this new thing for the first time and it creates a bond. It creates, um, yeah, that those deeper kind of relationships that carry onto the field. And, and we had that in Atlanta that year. 
I also want to ask you about uh, another center back in Atlanta, Miles Robinson, who I'm sure you know is from Massachusetts, and the Revs were close to trading up and, and drafting, but he ended up going to Atlanta um, just because I want to torture our listeners who are still haunted by the revolution, not getting Miles Robinson. Um, can you just talk about uh, playing with him and how high do you think his ceiling is? Uh, yeah, so my, I mean, Miles, his ceiling is um, it's, it's really limitless. Like, what what an incredible kid, what incredible talent natural ability like everyone always talks about oh in europe like all the best athletes play soccer in america all the best athletes play football like miles i'll put him up against anybody miles and marvell win two most athletic guys i've ever played with ever really seen up close um but miles came in as a really young kid out of syracuse and tata was a pass out of the back kind of guy and miles was not that player yet he is now but he was not then um and he just sat there kind of learning from Parky, Leandro Gonzalez, Piraz, both tremendous defenders and tremendous players with the ball at their feet. And so, yeah, I mean, Miles is a Boston guy. We joke about the Celtics all the time. We talk about the Pats nonstop. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of a, a New Englander by extension. But, yeah, I mean, Miles and I are, are good friends and, and really his – his ceiling, if you're worried about his ceiling, like it's it's only going to keep going up and up. Um, the the cup winning team, the MLS Cup winning team in 2018. Would you say that that is the best team you've played on? I know you mentioned the Galaxy uh, earlier about their potential and their star power, and also you had so many great teams you played on with the Revolution, and then of course you won a cup out in Colorado. Where does that 2018 MLS Cup team uh, rank among them? Uh, it's it's up there. I mean, I, I say the Galaxy team was the best team on paper just because if you actually read the list, you would be like, Jesus, the, all these guys. Oh, my gosh. Like Even the, the nobody guys are somebody now. Um, but it, it's between, I would say, the even though I was on the 05 Revs, I didn't play. I would say the 05 Revs and that 2018 um, Atlanta team are the two best that I've I played for as far as on the field production. And you became a, a captain down in Atlanta, especially during the, the season last year, which obviously was very difficult with the pandemic and the schedule changes and whatnot. How, how difficult was it um, playing through the 2020 season um, for you and the team? Really, really hard, really tough. I mean, you know, the pandemic, you don't have to get too deep into it, but, you know, we were – Everyone in the world was trying to figure themselves out, staying at home, watching the news. I mean, and you're supposed to, we as players are supposed to kind of keep our heads straight, stay fit. Every single day, you didn't know what the next day was going to bring. Were you going to get news of the schedule? Were you going to be back on the field tomorrow? Were you not going to be back on the field for a month? So, you know, running, staying in, in shape through the streets of Atlanta, not knowing if you were going to catch COVID, then showing up and training by yourself. Um, and on and on and on. It was it was a challenge. Everything was a challenge, and you know we we played really poorly as a team in Orlando, and the club got rid of Frank DeBoer, and then from there, I think it was just the club was gonna try and make it to the playoffs and and get ready for next year. Um, unfortunately, we didn't. But yeah, they've they've got the coach that they they wanted in there and and um have reworked a lot of the roster too 
we've kept you way too long, but we do have two last questions for you. I, I got to ask, as an outsider who's played for Bruce Arena before and you know, is now looking at New England from the outside looking in, what, what's your impression on how he has or, or will change the culture in, in New England? I, I think it's one of, um, other than, you know, getting Belichick, one of the best things the Crafts have ever done in, in their sports um, decisions, you know. Bruce is the perfect fit. He's the guy to take them to the next level. I think that he's done a great job, but a very Bruce Arena job on building their team. And it shows in terms of the results. And I think it's going to only continue to improve. I mean, I don't know where stadium development is at, but as a club, to have the training facility, to have the head coach, to have the DPs that you have. And, um, you know, some some MLS vets sprinkled in there, um, some good young players, some very good young players that kind of showed what they could do last season. Um, I think the future's really, really bright for the Revs. And, you know, every team I played for, it's like kids, it's tough to pick a favorite, you know, but I always watch the Rev games. I'm always pulling for the Revs. Still have, have good friends that are there at the organization. And, you know, you had a 17-year pro career. You mentioned um, winning an All-American uh, you know how that was one of your top two or three experiences. What ranks number one for you in your in your soccer experiences from your lengthy career? Ooh, I don't know. I it, it's it's really tough. I think that just making it out of those developmental contracts is like it's so tough, you know. Um, and to to piece it all together, you know, the it's hard to pick one moment because I was never really like that one moment type of guy I just kind of kept chugging kept chugging and I'm just kind of amazed that um I was able to do it you ask anybody on that 05 team you ask Stevie Nichol you didn't have to put him on a lie detector you just say tell me the truth you ever think Jeff would make it to season five in the MLS he'd say no and to a man they would all say the same thing um I guess that you know a tribute to the the league and the revs for kind of giving me that chance. You know, I said it when I retired, like Stephen Paul continued to give me that chance. And, um, yeah, it's kind of, kind of incredible that it, that it was able to keep going. Um, really the time of my life. It was so much fun. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you about your career and you know, fascinating stuff. We really appreciate it and all your time. Yes, it's good to talk to you again. And um, yeah, I'll be watching watching the revs all year long, that's for sure.